Is it raining? Is that what keeps on? Maybe. Okay. But there's, there were just, mm, outside makes scary noises. Uh. <laughs> and welcome back to another episode of Who is My Doctor? Who is my doctor? Who is indeed? I'm your host, Zach, and I know a lot about Doctor Who. And I'm also your host, Cassie, and I don't know a lot about Doctor Who. And today we are looking at Series 2, Episode 4, uh, The Girl in the Fireplace. Um... How to, uh, remember uh... I, I remember when I told you that the title was <laughs> The Girl in the Fireplace, you had some thoughts? Uh, you know what? Past Cassie might have right now, current Cassie, not a damn one. <laughs> not a not a thought between those eyes. Nope. You had said that the title "The Girl in the Fireplace" made you a little uncomfortable. Uh, if, that, if that sparks mean, any feelings, it sh- no, no, it it sparks no feelings because, of course, any sort of thought about anybody in a fireplace is a little unsettling. <laughs> However, I did have a ha, have a bit of a flashback of that poor girl in the Gas Ghost episode just getting annihilated via gas-filled room and spark. Yeah. So, so I can't, can't, it can't be any more flamey than that. No, no. That and that's kind of where my my um apprehensions are assuaged. <laughs> Well, I'm actually really looking forward to this one because this is one of those episodes that people remember as one of Tenant's best. Interesting. Um, like I don't like I don't think it's cracking anyone's top five, but it's certainly in most people's top ten. At the very least, an honorable mention. Yeah, and I I think it's I think it's definitely the best story of this season. There, I mean, there's some debate there depending on how you will resonate with other things, but of of my memories and my. Uh, feelings towards the season. I think this is the strongest one. I do still have uh, a hang-up with it, but we'll get to that in the post-conceptions. But we will, uh, we'll get, we'll get to that in just a minute here. First, we got to do the Cassie Profassi. Cassie Profassi! Yeah! <laughs> For the record, right now I am at a fifty percent rate. I'm at a fifteen. Correct to thirty guesses total. Yes, I believe. Yes, I believe that is correct. That as well. is correct. <laughs> now uh, I believe I have it written down. <laughs> okay, uh, fifteen out of thirty. So for this Cassie Profassi, uh, this episode centers largely around a bit of a mystery. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't want to spoil the whole situation, uh, so I'm just gonna kind of dance near it here and hope that it doesn't uh, hope that it doesn't hurt the experience too much. Uh, so this story takes place in two separate time periods simultaneously. I will let you know the first portion of time is in the 52nd century. You would never have guessed that. But the other half is in our past. Not like our personal past, but like in human history. I will just let you guess a century. What century do you think the other half takes place in? Do I get a hint? I mean, you got you got a one. This is this is random, I suppose. Uh, you got a one. You got a one in twenty-one chance, basically, of hitting it. Um, you're you're making a dice roll. 
We can make it a real dice roll if you want it. <laughs> so century, not decade. Yes, I'm saying yeah, century specifically. Go. What century is like Civil War era? Uh, that would be the 19th century, I believe. Like the American Civil War, you mean? Yeah. Okay. 19th century. That was in the 18th so, century. So I'm going to guess 19th century then. Okay. So your guess for that is the 19th century. Uh, and then this one's just a little bit of fun for me. In the last episode, you met uh, one of the Doctor's animal companions uh, in K-9. Affirmative. Uh, in this episode, I mean, he was a robot, but, you know, he's he's an animal. Uh, he's, a, he's a little puppo. Uh, this time he makes a different animal companion, though. Uh, I would like you to take a guess as to what animal companion he has in this episode. Okay, no, because this whole time I've been thinking dinosaur. We're going back to dinosaur days. <laughs> Which I thought, no. No, that's a little too silly. I will tell you, this isn't this isn't for several seasons. Uh, it's one of the seasons coming up with Matt Smith. Uh, he has an episode called Dinosaurs on a Spaceship. Oh my god. <laughs> that's Gives you, it tells you what exactly what it is on the tin with that one. Yep. Just to like give you some excitement for dinosaurs at least. Mm-hmm. Um, but he does make an animal companion this episode. Take a take a guess as to what animal it might be. A rat. You think it's a rat? I think it's a rat. The doctor makes a little rat companion. He gets ratatouille. Yeah, he gets he gets his own raccoonie. And raccoonie. All right. So Cassie's guesses for the professor is this takes place simultaneously. Oh, now I will interrupt myself a little bit when I say rat. Rat has a spectrum. I think rodent rodent There is a spectrum of rats. You can be a marsupial rat as an opossum. You could be a more human-handed rat as as a raccoon. Or you can be incredibly smart as a rat rat. Or or you can be a pigeon, a rat with wings. You could be anything. A, a cat is just a is just several rats inside the stomach of a being. No, <laughs> cats are their own thing because a lion is a kitty cat. Lion is not rat. All right, there there's a difference there. So a a rodent like animal, which I I am just gonna whittle down to rat. Okay. But also make the target large enough so that way I can vaguely hit it and still get a point. Okay. So Cassie's two guesses for this prophecy are, is that this story takes place simultaneously in the 52nd and 19th centuries. And also that the doctor this time around will make a little rat companion. Dr. Uh, Hootatooie. <laughs> Hootatooie. Yeah. Rat-it, rat-it, Ratatooie. There we go. <laughs> it was somewhere there. We got well, it. We got there together, and we will get right back to this in just a moment after we watch The Girl in the Fireplace. Right after these short messages. This episode of Who Is My Doctor is brought to you by Pi. 3.14159265353. Eight nine seven nine, three two three eight four six, two six four three three, eight three two seven nine five, zero two eight eight, four one nine seven one six nine three nine nine three seven five, one zero, five, eight, two. Wait.
And we are back from the girl in the fireplace. Quick question, Zach. Yes. What in the purge? <laughs> yeah, I think that was uh, what you had said the moment one of the clockwork robots uh, showed up. <laughs> what in the pre-French Revolution uh, automaton purge? <laughs> Uh, so it's worth mentioning that this episode was written by the same person that wrote uh, The Empty Child and the Doctor Dances. Uh, this is Stephen Moffat, who will uh, one day become the showrunner of Doctor Who as we are watching it. That makes sense. And he definitely has a, a fascination for for making something spooky. He had a, The Empty Child first, and now it's The Monster Under Your Bed is a clockwork robot that wants your brain. I don't, it was, it was when the doctor said, don't put your, like, keep your hands and arms to yourself. Don't put your feet over the side of the bed. Stay on the bed, right in the middle. Don't put your hands or feet over the edge. Because that, I thought, that is not a unique fear of Mm -hmm. mine. I I feel like that is an overall general fear. But... When it is validated in the form of a freaky French TikTok man, do not like. I will say Stephen Moffat's best strength as a writer for Doctor Who is when he finds a very universal fear. Not uh, universal might be that might be a stretch too far, but a very a familiar a, fear. A familiar fear, uh, and really like mines it. There's a couple other times where he does that, and we'll because get- I don't know if you saw me at all while we were watching this. Um, for context, we have kind of a like bush outside of uh, one of the windows near the room where we record. The wind blew and scratched on the window. One of the branches scratched on the window. And I looked over very slowly for fear of seeing my scary French purge man. <laughs> my scary French purge man coming this fall to TLC. I just, I knew that there wasn't anything there, but then the toxic part of my brain went, but what if there is? But what if there is this time? Uh, Yes, uh, the story is about the doctor and his companions uh, wind up on a spaceship in the 51st century. I had said 52nd century, uh, but I was not the only person off by 100 years today. (laughs) Um, To be fair, uh, I did say the number 18. (laughs) Yes, but that is unfortunately the 19th century. the number 18 um you would you would also i will so you specified the period of the american civil war or at least that century so even if you had said damn my specificity yeah unfortunately not the case here but in this this ship has uh various time windows into the life of one madame de pompadour mistress to king louis the 15th hey (laughs) why why? Uh, Why her? I know that that's a question asked throughout the whole episode by <laughs> literally everybody. Why? So at the end of the episode, they revealed that the ship is called the SS Madame de Pompadour. Yeah, that doesn't help. Why? So the robots had have decided that because the ship is Madame de Pompadour, the only thing that can repair the ship is also Madame de Pompadour. Who called the ship Madame de Pompadour, though? Uh, oh, just excuse me. SS the Madame de Pompadour. It's not necessarily. It's not really about who named it. It. it, it the idea is that it's sort of random chance. It could, there. This just as easily could have happened on a ship that was called like the SS Albert Einstein, and they went back into Einstein well, instead. Least, uh, this is just. This is more about 
the show, the this the story had ha- picked someone at random more or less, and then they saw where it went. It picked picked at random feels a little too extraneous because again, we managed to find somebody mm-hmm. who um doesn't not resemble Rose. I should also I should clarify having then. hot feels for the doctor. Yeah, I should I should clarify. I don't mean I don't mean like the writer picked someone at random. I mean the the universe of Doctor Who. Again. This was just a this was random chance that it was Meta, that was Madame de Pompadour. It was again. not necessarily about someone deliberately chose Madame de Pompadour to set this story up. The robots in their misunderstandings uh, decided that the only thing that could fix the ship is the person the ship was named after because they had been repairing the ship with people parts oh, up because, to them. Because the ship was also 37 years old, so they had to wait until she was also 37 years old. Duh. <laughs> yeah, basically there's... Th- the idea is this, that, the ro- that the robots aren't functioning quite properly. They've sort of twisted themselves into a logic pretzel where this is the only way that can fix it. It doesn't, I will admit, it doesn't entirely make sense, and that's one of my biggest problems with this story. Um, I do think that there's some really great moments that come out of it because they chose to do this story, but I definitely think that the, like, twisted logic of the robots does become a bit hard to swallow if you think about it too hard. It's the, it's the fact that I I recognized from the very beginning of the show, you and I had a conversation about how logic need not apply. Yeah, and just, things that make sense don't just don't like don't hold on to fact don't ho- hold on to anything too dearly because it simply will not make anything make sense yeah sometimes but this they is will... something where this was something where it was like i truly can't even really forgive this episode for not making clear sense because it there were too many things that i had to override and overlook in order to make the story make sense however there is something that did come come up in my brain which i do feel like is prominent enough that i would like to to discuss it a little bit and i want your hot take as well Mm -hmm. that the doctor has almost a peter pan like quality and what i mean that is like in the story of peter pan he is a human child that was whisked away and effectively turns into a a fey being and you know as the story goes he comes down and takes children back to neverland to you know never die and to be young forever the doctor isn't necessarily taking people away and promising that they will never die and that they will be young forever however he does have the certain quality of I'll be back in five minutes and it's been 13 years. Yeah, especially in this the, story. Yeah, because of the like time differences and yeah. what have you. But it it just struck me as a little fascinating that the doctor is simply doing what the doctor will do. Not really, not, not caring about the people's lives that he's interfering with. Mm-hmm. But having that just be the way that things are for him and not really like using his own logic to say, oh, well, if I go through this fireplace one more time, the last time she was six years old and now she's a full like 18 year old 
person that and you i was only gone for a couple hours like it it does filter into that same like he's a bit self-serving logic of well things will bend around me this doctor is a bit single-minded yes um and i i think one of the traits i think one of the traits that david tennant's doctor has really strongly is ego and I don't mean this in like they've written him poorly. I mean that they've written this flaw into the character that the tenth Doctor has main character syndrome, which is which is interesting because he is a main character. And so I there's a part of it where I'm of two two sides on it. One, it makes him it does make him kind of obnoxious at times, but on the other hand, it's also a really interesting character flaw to see someone who is our main character treating themselves as if they are the protagonist of every story they walk into. Well, particularly since I don't feel that Eccleston's doctor really had that. Yeah. Eccleston's biggest struggle was the fact that he is grappling with an immense sense of grief. Yes. And Tennant does have a a sense of grief. And, you know, Madame de Pompadour even says that he's... or as they're going through each other's memories uh, that she just gets loneliness and lonely and sad and mm-hmm. you know for the rest of the episode then refers to him as her lonely angel yeah which i i, I think that that's also the like the dichotomy of that is that he is extremely alone and he is grappling with the fact that you know he says it in the episode prior to this that somebody can spend the whole life with him, but he cannot spend his whole life with anybody because he, he doesn't age like he humans doesn't do. age. No. Yeah. yeah and I, cause I think that part of what makes them different is that Eccleston is, is um, suffering from survivor's guilt where he feels the weight of the fact that he is this lone survivor of this cataclysmic war. And, you know, part of part of what happens is that he learns the Daleks live. So that's, you know, almost a re-traumatizing where he's not the last survivor of the war. He's the last survivor of his side of the war, which in some ways makes it worse. David Tennant's doctor almost has like a survivor's bias where he thinks that now that because he survived, he cannot every like the story is his. He cannot die. He is effectively like a god. Mm-hmm. Um and so a lot of his stories are about disproving that or alternatively reinforcing that. And so there's a dance that his character does um, that I think a lot of people really have attached to because there's there is an attractiveness to the confidence of a man that believes the, that he can move the earth with his willpower. What? Everyone attracted to the doctor? Yeah. What? I, well, I know. I, so but there's also people like me that don't that or 10 is not their favorite doctor. And it's partly because of that attitude where he's or he's views himself as the main character. And so there's a part of it that comes across as just kind of there's just kind of a man attitude to it. Like I said, I, I I'm of two minds on it. It really depends on the writer and how they how they approach it. Especially this season, it comes across very strangely because it's also focusing on Rose sort of losing the veneer she's put on the Doctor, where she thought that her and the Doctor had a very special relationship. And now this is the second time in a row where she's watched another person walk into the Doctor's life 
that diminishes her feeling of specialness. Well, I, the third, even if you include Mickey, because you had uh, Sarah Jane that proves he's had companions before. You had Mickey come along, which now proves that other people can just walk into his life because Captain Jack did come in, but that was almost by necessity. He had to come in or he would die. Um, same with Adam. Adam also had to come in or he would he, he would leave, he could leave that facility, but he wouldn't have any life to go to. But this is the first one where Mickey just asked to come and he said yes. And so the Rose has, Rose has to deal with that. And now this third one with Madame de Pompadour gets offered to come along on an adventure too. And this is now just another person and Rose is starting to feel a little bit like she's in a line of people. And I think there's... I think that's an interesting, like, split here where someone has... Where the Doctor has, you know, like I said, main character syndrome. And Rose is almost being instigated into side character syndrome, if that makes sense. I don't have anything to build on top of that. Um, <laughs> this is also me not trying to kill you with silence, but me just going... Oh, you shouldn't have anywhere to go with it. Yep. Uh, you did mention that... You did mention that Madame de Pompadour uh, kind of throws herself at the Doctor a little bit. Uh, when she first is meets him and is of age. Uh, and I guess they agreed uh, because David Tennant and Sophie Miles, the girl that played uh, Madame de Pompadour, uh, dated for about a year after this episode uh, oh, was shot. Oh, that's kind of cute, though. Yeah. <laughs> um, it is also not the last time he does that. Oh, come on, David. <laughs> uh, but we'll get to her later. Uh, so I just think it's a fun little a fun little detail. I It's also... It, it is a weird little trend they've had now where people just kind of remark how handsome the doctor is which is so silly to me because it's it's i am i'm in the camp of like i get it i wrote down in my notes why is everyone so horny for the doctor i mean i get it but still (laughs) because there there is something very attractive about a confident comfortable in in their own body human period but particularly when it's a man and I'm a woman and it's just nice to watch somebody be confident like I understand and particularly if like in the case of Madame Pompadour she was under the impression that she had made up the doctor that she had made up the man in the fireplace and that everything that had happened when she was a child was all but a dream So I can only imagine that if I found out that my imaginary friend was actually a real person, first of all, I would have to go to a therapy immediately (laughs) because my imaginary friend may or may not actually have been like a spirit demon entity in my backyard. We don't need to talk about that quite yet, but... You know, if you'd imagined this, like, hero of sorts, and then you come to find out that this hero that you thought you created is actually real, like, that would be very exciting, particularly in 1700s France. And this is before the French Revolution. That didn't happen for, like, another 50 years. So this is still, like, peaceful times-ish. There was uh, the overthrowing, I think, of... Not Bastille. Was it Bastille? It was a prison, um, which kind of started getting the ball rolling for the French Revolution. But in this particular time in France, this is like the, I think this is referred to as the Gilded Age, where Um. things are, or that might be, no, 
No, I think this is it because this is still the time when the rich are extremely rich and the poor are extremely poor. But in this case, we're not talking about the poor. We're talking about the the extraordinarily wealthy in Versailles, the most prestigious castle abode in, in all the land. And so... Uh, I will actually t- say the Gilded Age was apparently shortly after the Civil War, according to the internet here. Okay. Uh, so that that actually was in the 19th century. Well, I got something right. Yeah. But anyhow. Cassie Brafassi gets twisted into truth once again. You know, it's just kind of a habit. Um, <laughs> also, I've been trying to rack my brain on how I can justify a rat being a horse. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, there unfortunately was no rat. <laughs> Uh, they were in France, much like in the movie Ratatouille. Um, but instead, this his animal <laughs> companion was a horse that he named Arthur. My I had another question. I'm a, completely abandoning my tangent about the French Revolution. We can just table that. We can put that book down. Put it away. We're not gonna go. We're not gonna get into that because I love the French Revolution. Anyways, how did the horse get on the ship? I know that they have like tied doors and stuff throughout the interior of the of the palace and then also in the ship however if it's in the interior of the castle in the palace there is no way that the horse would have gone well, they inside. did. They did show that one of them was also outside. Okay, yeah, um, but it was outside in a garden, nowhere near where horses would typically be. Yeah, I mean, it, there were just windows throughout her life, and they also established there are several windows that they didn't go through. They had to find the one that was her at thirty-seven. Um, so you could just presume that it came through another time window, especially because we see that some of them aren't literal windows some of them are fireplaces some of them are tapestries which is even sillier to think of this horse being like oh a draft <laughs> behind a tapestry well let me go in so, there someone's need, someone needs to close that window wilbur i like that your horse isn't not hank hill <laughs> i was going for mr ed but we'll see if that sounds i'll have to find out how well that sounded when i go back to editing Bobby? this later Sorry, that's just for me. <laughs> that's for me, and then also for later for you. <laughs> then there was also another little detail. I'm, I didn't, I, I didn't ask you about it while we were watching it, but I'm curious about uh, the sight of body parts being used as spaceship pieces. Um, I wasn't surprised, <laughs> which is more in the more in line with i assumed that it was alien in nature mm. it wasn't until they really started dissecting the horrors of we saw an eyeball as a camera and a human heart and they remarked that it smelled like cooking yeah like barbecue However, I also need you to remember, my love, I listen to a lot of true crime (laughs) and real life actual horror. So a single human eyeball, a human heart and the smell of barbecue, that's just a regular Tuesday afternoon. (laughs) Like if they started showing off like diaries and books made out of human flesh, Mm -hmm. 
a la Ed Gein, then we would have a little bit more of a reaction from me. However, body horror does not phase me. <laughs> I was actually happy to see the heart there. It made me comfortable. Then they're, after they discover the body parts and they explain the barbecue thing. Because it was just those two. It was those two and then the smell. We didn't see anything else. Like, if there had been just, like, a hand, like, crawling around. No, because that's very it, isn't it? Or the thing. The Adams Family. Yeah, I think that is the thing from Adam. Yeah, it is the thing. I'm but, trying- you know, if there was, like, a leg just kind of chilling and hanging out, like, nah, maybe that would have been... A little bit more um, frightening, or I know that I refer to it a lot, but brain the the concept of brain in a jar really does give me a little bit of the eeks. A little bit of the eeks. A little bit of the oof. That's a little frightening. Mm-hmm. Specifically, intellect of hours in D anD D. Those bitches <laughs> scare me. Yeah, it's um, a little anything brain related or like nervous system related that gets to me. Uh, speaking it of, it makes me a little um. <laughs> Nervous. Speaking of brains, uh, the doctor has mind meld powers now. Yeah, since uh, when? When th- was that a thing? That is a classic Who thing. It comes up very rarely, and it mostly. But it, does- it, ha- it has been established before then in yeah. in yes. Who's past. Yes, and it's pretty much used exclusively to just like get exposition out of the way. Like the audience already knows what's going on. We don't need to reiterate it to this character, so we'll just do this real quick. They don't do it a lot. It's and mainly because it's sort. It's kind of dumb. I think it's 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 psychic paper taken to an extreme. Yes, but also since that it has already been established in the past, bringing it up again does not seem quite as out of left field as if they had just like made it up for this episode for this particular instance. You know, it's kind of like hearing a Yo Mama joke for the 1400th time. Like, it it comes up enough times that it's like, okay, cool. That's just, that's normal. (laughs) Going back to the horse a little bit. um, The horse, so at the end of the, at the end of the episode, well, not the end of the episode, but the climax of the episode, the horse jumps through the mirror time window uh, with David Tennant riding on, on the back of it. Because they needed a truck. And they didn't have a truck, which only reminded me of my favorite, my favorite line from a previous episode. What's that? We out in a car. It's like, thank you so much for bringing that little nugget back of this could have been solved so easily by just having a vehicle. We are on a horse. (laughs) I mean, they did go for something with at least some horsepower. Well, yes, but it's the fact that it was like, okay, cool. There is a common logic in this show of... If you have a wall to break down or glass to bust through, just get a car. <laughs> yeah, it was. It's funny. Um, the place they were filming the ballroom uh, is an authentic ballroom. It wasn't like a set, so they didn't allow a horse in there. What? <laughs> so every time you see the horse, it's been uh, not CG'd in. It's been green screened in, uh, chroma keyed in. Uh, you don't say. So. <laughs> Uh, but because of that, Stephen Moffat did, he, when he learned that the horse wasn't allowed in the ballroom and they weren't sure what they were going to do quite yet, he had written two other possibilities for the horse being used to get through the time window. Uh, one of which just included the doctor sitting on the horse and the horse bucking him through it like a catapult. (laughs) 
Amazing. Crash dummy doctor. Yeah. Uh, so, but they decided that one was too silly. Uh, they had another option, though, which I think is even sillier, which is just that the doctor bashes through it himself, just like runs his body into it, and it scares the horse so bad he runs into the TARDIS. So that way he's out of the episode. And then Wait. The- Wait, the horse was going to be the one frightened running into the TARDIS? Yeah, the horse would be frightened of the shattered glass. How how would the the horse have opened the TARDIS doors? (laughs) And also, does that mean we would have had a horse just in every episode after this? Well, according to what Stephen Moffat said, he had 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 a throwaway line that the horse found the stables in the back. Wait, no, that's so funny. Oh my god. Yeah, that's one of those where I'm like I am glad that they did what they did. It was the it was objectively the best choice for the story. However, but damn would it have been funny if they if you just spend the rest of the series knowing there's a horse in the back of the TARDIS. Jeez. Like the uh, horse had to go through the like never-ending wardrobe to get to the yeah. the, the stable. Uh, Stephen Moffat and if also... there's a stable in the TARDIS, that means that there are, have to be other animals in the stable in the TARDIS. Uh, Stephen Moffat is also uh, a little bit of a little indulgent as a writer, as I'm sure you've noticed. So he also joked, I don't know if this was actually part of it, if it was just a joke, that uh, as the horse ran through the TARDIS, it shit in the TARDIS because uh, it was so scared. Little, little bit too far there, Stephen. Yeah, I just like the narrative of the horse running through the closet, ripping off a feather boa, and, ju- and a silly hat and a big pair of glasses, <laughs> and look and just giving me that that comedic image of a horse in people clothes. <laughs> it thinks it's human as it's finding its way in space stable. Mm-hmm. Even though I know that there isn't a horse in the TARDIS, there's a horse in the TARDIS. In <laughs> there's my, at least a stable in there. There's uh, a stable. There. So there have hey, been hey, horses in the TARDIS. If there is not currently a horse in the TARDIS, there's a horse in my heart. <laughs> there's a horse loose inside the TARDIS. <laughs> I didn't know he knew how to do that. A horse spinoff. Uh, there was another little touch that I liked a little. Oh my god! Wait, horse and canine, please. <laughs> we are on a horse. <laughs> there was a little callback in the middle of it when the doctor wanders in, uh, tipsy from the party, where he talks about inventing the banana daiquiri a couple centuries early. Uh, he says, "Always bring a banana to a party. Bananas are good." Bananas are good. Uh, which is, I don't know if you remember that, but in... I did. I did remember that. Uh, I was very happy. In the last happy. episode, Stephen Moffat wrote, so he's uh, really indulging himself a little bit here, too. I think Stephen Moffat just likes bananas. Yeah, he probably likes bananas. One one joke that really gets me uh, in the ballroom scene is when she's like, I will not step foot in your world. And the robot's like, we do not require your feet. I also like that because that is just silly little robot logic. Yeah, because there's there's something about it that's so like true to the character, but at the same time diffuses like the tension of the situation in a way that feels appropriate. It completely takes the rug out from underneath her, underneath her feet. Yes. The one thing that bothered me in that scene 
was when the doctor meets the king of France. Uh, Why is that? Because he goes, this. she goes, this is my lover, the king of France. And then he seems like, like a real, a really jealous boyfriend. Oh, this is my lover, the king of France. Yeah? Well, I'm the lord of time. I'm like, what the fuck is, what? <laughs> you know, you've known the whole time that they've been, they, that, you know, they've been lovers. Why are you act? Why are you acting like this? You know, it didn't come off to me as jealous boyfriend as much as it did an attempt to sound like more powerful than the king of France. Yeah, it just and and not as like a well, I'm the Lord of Time, but more as like a supposed to be like a sick jab. Yeah, and, but what I mean, I guess what I mean is it felt like peacocking. Like he's like talk, he's like showing it. Oh yeah, you're the king of France. Well, your girlfriend likes me more and I'm like better than you. I'm the Lord of Time. Eh, I mean, yeah, but it's also been established. Um, there were other peacocks. So there's just <laughs> kind of peacocks. a theme of peacocks in this episode. And then uh, there is a, a bit of a an interesting conceit for a, for a moment where the doctor is just okay with waiting for 3,000 years. Yeah, I mean, I there was a part of me that... That feels like that could be the end of, like a doctor story of just having to actually live life as as a human but also considering that rose has like entered the tardis's mind yeah i and has controlled it and was bad wolf i feel like if push came to shove she could have very easily manifested the tardis in an area around the doctor. Yeah. Especially because the TARDIS does kind of have a mind of its own. So if they walked in there, they could probably talk the TARDIS into going to pick up the doctor. Yeah. It's just, it was just one of those where it, this episode, I think, is really emotionally strong. Like, it's got some really good ideas in it. Mm-hmm. But then the threading that they use to put it together is really weak. Well, because I also did like the the logic of... I did make a little bit of a face at it when they entered the bedroom because it's just them. And it's simply because of the way that the room is structured and where the bed is placed. Mm -hmm. But I thought for sure that it was going to be like, a oh, this isn't just a duplicate or a replica. This is the original. I thought she was talking about the bed and I was about to get up and walk out of the room. (laughs) Yeah. Because it was just like come on gang like we don't I, we we get it i, I almost feel but like then, it's deliberate because then, they put then, like rose then. petals on that bed but then but then but then it was for her silly little fireplace and the logic behind bringing the fireplace to versailles is very sound because in her head she's thinking like no oh, well this is how the doctor's gotten here before with this particular fireplace. Therefore, if he's going to come back at any point, there is a good chance. I have a much better chance of seeing him if I have the original here with me. Yeah. And it was... I did appreciate that because that's some woman logic right there. <laughs> and it's good they, that they installed the rotating floor too, just in case. Yeah. That's some girl math. <laughs> that's some girl engineering. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I I do think this is one of the stronger episodes of this season. 
despite my misgivings. And primarily just because it's exploring such an interesting idea regarding, you know, the the doctor's like, a bit, like the the nature of being able to go back and forth in time, in a way that the doctor doesn't normally get to explore. Because the rule normally is when he shows up somewhere, he's just there. He doesn't go back and forth. So mm-hmm. it was an interesting conceit. Uh, it was well performed. There's good, uh, some good emotional resonance in it. But I do agree that there is some real threadbare logic. And I am a little annoyed with how horny everyone is for the doctor. I mean, I get it. <laughs> I'm one of them. But... You know, I don't blame I don't blame regular people for like getting there. But it just feels a little oh, redundant. In the series. Thank you, Zach, for calling me regular person. That makes me feel Re- real cool and special. Regular meaning like not in the TV show. You are a real person. <laughs> I don't. I don't begrudge real people mm-hmm. for having that feeling. Yeah, fuck but off. It's a little. It's a little different when it comes up over and over You're again. You're just jealous in the TV show. This is three out of four episodes this season where it's happened. You know what? Fair. Um, I forget because we watched them so far apart. I'm like we've we've seen like sixteen episodes. Yeah. If we haven't, we've only seen. Oh, no, never mind. I was going to say, we've only seen 15. But. Yeah, this is our 15th story, but we've, but this is our, but I think our 17th episode. I believe so. Because I think there were 13 last season and we're on episode four of this season. So I think this is 17th episode, um, but we do have another two-parter coming up next episode. Oh, boy. Um, so we'll have to make sure we get enough time set aside for that. Um, Can't wait but for we, that. You do meet uh, the next member of the trinity of dr nemesis next episode <gasps> so uh you've already met the daleks this will mm. be uh number two of three of the doctor's sort of arch nemesis on a scale from um Slitheen to dalek how much will i like it uh it's, it'll definitely be closer to dalek Woo! Um, i'll take it i th- I don't know if you i don't know if you'll like them more or less than daleks it will really because this is Daleks hold a very weird special place in my heart. I yeah. don't think anything can replace can replace them. Yeah, because they're not they're not cool they're not weird little guys. But you'll find out on the next episode of Who is My Doctor? Hey, who is my doctor? Who is indeed. Bye. And that concludes this very French episode of Who is My Doctor? <laughs> I'm sorry, I shouldn't engage in stereotype, no matter how accurate it might be. But if you have any notes on my perfect French accent, you can message us on Twitter, Blue Sky, Threads, or Instagram at WimdyPod. That's W-I-M-D-P-O-D. The poll for which classic story Cassie gets to see first is going until February 4th, 2024, so be sure to pop in the Twitter and cast your vote. Next week, Cassie gets her first look at the Cybermen, so be sure to tune in because your Tuesdays are now Whose Days.